We interrupt your broadcast to bring you an episode from the Stephen or Else Network of Truly Epic Podcast. Find more shows at StephenOrElse.com. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that likes to wear little fur jockey shorts. Just not in public, but damn are they comfortable to sleep in. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today we get back to some 70s Conan, or to be more specific, Conan the Barbarian, issue number 10 from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of October 1971, but it hit the stands in July. It sold for 25 cents, and the title of the story is Beware the Wrath of Anu. Now, take note of that price point there, folks, 25 cents. If you remember when we talked about issue number nine, that issue just sold for 15 cents. So that's a 10 cent price hike here, which was line wide in that month back in 71 from what I could find. Anyway, this issue was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Sal Buscema, and the letters were by Sam Rosen. Into the boat! Now, before we get into the synopsis, as we normally do at this point in the show, I'd like to mention that for each of these Marvel Conan issues, I have been taking the synopsis that is available over at marvelfandom.com and adding to that, uh, embellishing what is there. And for much of it, I was rewriting what was already there. Some of the original synopsis would peek out here and there, but much of it was completely rewritten. With this episode, however, and probably going forward, I am taking that synopsis for marvelfandom.com and I'm not changing a word because I found that I was spending way too much time trying to write the synopsis And because of that, episodes were coming out late. So for the sake of expediency and the goal of never missing a week, here is the synopsis for the issue straight off of MarvelFandom.com. We didn't have time. As the issue opens, Conan and Jenna find themselves cooling their heels at the gates to an unnamed Corinthian city-state. They would like to enter the city, but they're having a bit of trouble convincing the guards to let them in. The guards are then distracted by even more city guards who, with a Captain Aaron in the lead, are in hot pursuit. It's hot pursuit time, Flash! Chasing a pair of thieves. And when Conan gets in the way of their arrows, they turn their wrath on him. He is saved in turn by the two thieves as they help him escape onto the roofs. By doing so, unfortunately, Conan is forced to leave Jenna behind. They tell her to meet them at the Temple of Anu, and then Conan and his two new companions are off, escaping certain imprisonment by running across the rooftops toward the temple. It turns out that one of the thieves is Bergen, 
the Gunderman captain Conan briefly allied with in the lost city of Lanjiao back in issue number eight. Bergen, Conan, and the third man, Igon, make it safely to the temple of Anu and meet up with one of the priests, who it turns out has himself a little side hustle going on in which he fences the goods stolen by Bergen. Conan is then reunited with Jenna, but as happy as she is to see her barbarian warrior, the thief Igon catches her eye and her heart. Conan, oblivious to their obvious flirtations, agrees to team up with Bergen and rob the city blind. This they now do, always staying one step ahead of Captain Aaron. Eventually, the duo targets the secret ruler of the city, the red priest, Nabonidus. Meanwhile, Captain Aaron traces the thieves back to the temple of Anu, threatening and bribing the priest to help him set a trap, and Bergen is then captured. Igon, more interested in Jenna, doesn't seem to care that his partner is imprisoned and refuses to help Conan break him out. Bergen is hanged, and Conan spies Captain Aaron meeting with the priest in the window of the Temple of Anu. Angered beyond belief, Conan confronts the priest, who summons Anu himself, a red humanoid bull god. I am the bull god. Nope, none of that. None of that. Not on this podcast. The priest is protected from Anu's rage by an amulet, but loses that protection when Conan snatches the amulet from around the priest's neck. Anu goes on a rampage, growing larger and larger until it takes the priest in hand and crushes him. His bloodlust thus quenched, Anu turns wraith-like, grows hundreds of feet tall, and vanishes back into the heavens. The priest, near death, is helped along by a blow from Conan's sword. As the issue ends, Conan returns to the gallows where Bergen's corpse still swings in the wind. Conan creeps up on the guard watching over the gallows and slits his throat before cutting down Bergen's body, burning the scaffold to the ground, and burying poor Bergen outside of town. Alright, so some of that had to be rewritten. Sue me. Sue me for what? Okay, so first up, this issue marks the first full year of Conan the Barbarian at Marvel Comics. Issue number one hit the stands on July 21st, 1970, and this one on July 20th, 1971. Also, until this issue, all previous issues have had across the top of the cover, just above the title, The Greatest Sword and Sorcery Hero of All. The exception to this, of course, is the very first issue, which has new first time in comic book form, which we all know is a lie, considering that the first time Conan appeared in comic book form was in a Mexican anthology comic series in the 1950s. Anyway, back to the point, issue 10 here has up there across the top of the cover, just above the title, the most savage hero of all time. And then by the next issue, there's nothing up there. So, yeah, not sure why I pointed that out. Just figured it might be of some interest. This issue also contains two backup tales. The first is a reprint of a Black Knight story that had originally appeared in Black Knight number five from December of 1955. 
And the second backup is a new, well, new at the time, five-page coal tale called The King and the Oak. Now, I do want to make it clear that I'm reading this issue from a collection of Conan comics, one of the Marvel epic collections. And so it doesn't contain either of these backup features, which is a bit of a pity. But from what I could find, the Cole story is based off of a poem that was written by Robert E. Howard. And really, that's about as deep as I want to get into all of that, since this is a Conan podcast and not a Cole podcast. Not that I'm never going to get into some Cole comics. I might. I'm just not going to do that now. I hope you're all okay with that. So let's get into the issue itself. The cover really stands out to me, primarily for the big red bull god of Anu, who is just punching his way through a wall of the, the temple. And there are people out on the steps, one of which looks like has been squished under the god's hand because the god is about... I don't know, three, four times the size of regular people. And Conan is hanging off of one of the bull god's horns and he's got his sword out and he's ready to just freaking chop away at the bull god. Sticking with the pointy end. It's a pretty awesome cover, I think. And one of the reasons it really stood out for me, though, when I was kind of looking through this epic collection and I ran across this cover and I kind of went, oh, that's pretty cool. We're going to get a minotaur in this issue, which... Technically, I guess we do, but it's not really a minotaur. It's a avatar for this bull god, Anu. But I'm for some reason, I'm really into minotaurs. I think they're freaking super cool. And I, I don't know why. I can't explain it. They're just something I find visually appealing about them. I've always been into characters that are big and strong. I've always gravitated towards like the Chewbacca type characters. If there's a character that has like a buddy traveling with them who doesn't really speak a lot and is just a big hulking mass of muscle that really is a big softy but isn't afraid to tear people's arms off. I just get into stuff like that for some reason. I think that kind of stuff is pretty cool. And I don't know, maybe it's because I always wish that I had a friend like that to keep them bullies from pounding on me back in the day. But Another reason why this cover stood out to me is it makes me think of a book that I read back in the 90s that was a Dragonlance book called Kaz the Minotaur. And Kaz was also read. And in the Dragonlance world, Minotaurs are classified as evil, but Kaz ended up being, you know, bucking the system and being a good guy and a hero. And it's been forever since I read that book, but I remember really digging it. It was uh, written by Richard A. I don't know how you pronounce this guy's last name. K-N-A-A-K. I don't know if that's Kanak or if it's just pronounced Knack, but it was published in July of 1990. And I'm hoping to get back to it. I'm, I'm starting a project where I'm going back and trying to read or listen to the audiobook versions of all those Dragonlance books I read back in the day. But that's that's happening very slowly right now. I haven't really jumped into that full force, but that's probably why I really dig this cover is because it makes me think of Kaz the Minotaur and Minotaurs in general. So getting into the issue, I want to talk about the setting first, because everything in issue 10 really is, it's all, well, it's somewhat based on events that will happen in the Robert E. Howard short story, Rogues in the House, which that's what we're going to get in issue number 11. 
That issue is the adaptation of Rogues in the House. And there are some things that Robert E. Howard talks about in that story that don't happen in the story. They happen before the story begins, you know, kind of what's happened before that, that set up why Conan is in the situation he's in when we first are introduced to him in Rogues in the House. Well, that's what issue 10 is, basically. Roy Thomas has taken some of that and he's used issue 10 to set up what is going to be issue number 11, Rogues in the House. And I'm going to go into a lot more of that in the next episode. And actually, I'm going to talk about it just a bit here as we talk about the ending of the issue. But that's what we're looking at here. And based on Roy Thomas's amazing book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one. This is not one of Roy Thomas's favorite issues. He, I guess he says he's rather proud of it looking back, but it wasn't one of his favorites. And he even says that it wasn't the, the, the fans. It wasn't their favorite either. And I rather enjoyed it. But one of the things we'll get into in the next episode, um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about here, is that in Rogues in the House, it's never made clear exactly where that story takes place. We know it takes place in some sort of city that has uh, an area of the city they refer to as the maze, which is basically, I guess, kind of a, a poor part of the city where a lot of thugs and thieves and, and low-income people live. But they never, Robert E. Howard never names the city that that story takes place in. So with issue number 10 and then leading into issue number 11, Roy Thomas based on a letter from Robert E. Howard to a pair of fans, which again, we're going to get into more detail in the next episode. He places this story in Corinthia, but he never gives the city itself a name. He just refers to it as a Corinthian city-state. In this issue, we also get another appearance of Jenna, who first appeared in issue number six, Devil Wings of Shadazar. She was also in the previous issue. And after the events of the previous issue, they find themselves outside this Corinthian city-state, and they're trying to get in, but the guards won't let them in. Conan is telling the guards that he is a trapper and a trader of animal furs, which he has with him. He's got some furs with him, and he's telling them, I just want to come in and do some business, and this girl is with me. The guards just assume that Conan and Jenna are thieves, and so they won't let them in because, as one of the guards say, if we let you in, you'll just join the other scoundrels who live and loot about the maze. When Jenna tells the guard that she doesn't know anything, they don't know anything about this maze, and she says to let them pass, the one, one of the guards tells her, he, he kind of says, nobody asked you to speak, woman. And then the, the first guard who called them scoundrels said, well, <laughs> well, he says, I, wench. We've had enough of your kind in this city, too. Which I guess he's alluding to the fact that he thinks that Jenna is a prostitute, which Conan takes great offense to and threatens to stick the guard's pike into the guard, to skewer him on his own pike. That's when uh, another big group of guards run up, led by Captain Aaron, and they are chasing a pair of thieves. In fact, he says he's hot on the trail of the boldest thief in the city because as they're running by, one of the guards there at the city gate kind of calls out to him, hey, we're trying to get these folks to leave and they won't leave. We need your help. And that's when Captain Aaron's like, 
why don't you shut up and get out of my way? I'm I'm trying to catch this thief and you're bothering me with a couple of people at a frick at the frickin' gate. And so they let Conan in. But it's at that moment that they spy these two thieves up on the up on the rooftops above them. They go to shoot an arrow into the thieves, but Conan trips the archer, which causes the, you know, he does it on purpose. He doesn't want these thieves to be shot. And this causes all the other guards to basically start kicking Conan's ass. I'm kicking my ass, do you mind? And they're, they, they've got him. A, a couple of the guards have got him, like uh, they're holding his arms and they're bending him over. So w- another guard can then chop off Conan's head. And actually, I think it's Captain Aaron himself pulls out his sword and he's about to lop off Conan's head. When one of the thieves up on the roof drops a brick atop Captain Aaron's head, saving Conan and Conan muscles his way out of the group of guards and he jumps up onto the roof and the the thieves help him up, but they can't get to Jenna. And so they tell her, you know, meet us at the, the temple of Anu. And it's here that we learn that one of these two thieves is Bergen. And I'm sure you remember him from issue number eight. He's the guy that was chasing Conan at the very beginning and Conan kept quote, killing him. And yet he kept surviving and coming back and coming after Conan. He was my favorite character in that issue. And I rather like him here as well. And he is with another thief, his partner, Igon, who is uh, somewhat of a novice thief. Bergen is kind of teaching him the ropes. We, We find out that Conan, of course, thought that Bergen died in the city of Lanzhou when it when it destroyed itself. And Bergen thought the same of Conan. And Conan asks Bergen if he was able to to escape with any of the treasure. And if he did so, he hopes that it lasted longer than the treasure that Conan was able to get out of the city. Because if you remember, his his treasure turned into dust. And apparently whatever Bergen stole seemed to have not turned into dust because he tells Conan that the treasure that he took lasted long enough for him to return here to this unnamed city state in Corinthia. And he returned to find that the girl that he was in love with, which he did talk about in issue eight, he, he, he returns to find that she's already married. And so then he stayed drunk, he says, for about a month, which finished off his gold. We meet the priest of Anu, who's kind of a big guy, big round, bald fella with red bloodshot eyes. And he, is a, he acts as a fence for the thieves in this Corinthian city-state. And he also has this ability to summon this avatar of the bull god Anu. And he does it there when he first meets Conan, because Conan, looking about this temple, which is the walls are like covered in gold and jewels and whatnot, he kind of chastises Bergen for risking his life running across the rooftops to steal gold just to bring to this priest when obviously there's a fortune to be made in gold and jewels there in the temple. Well, as you can imagine, the, the, the priest is quite offended by Conan's comment and shows Conan what would happen if he tried to rob the, the temple of Anu. And he places his hand upon this amulet that is hanging around his neck. And then he summons the, the avatar of this bull god. And Conan gets angry over this and tells the priest that he was just joking and that he should chill out. 
And that's when they noticed that this bull god, this avatar, which had been kind of wraith-like and wispy, is, is taking a very solid form. And the priest freaks out, making me think that he doesn't really do this all that often. Maybe this is his first time. But he clutches at the amulet and he sends the, uh, the bull god avatar back to wherever it came from. And everybody's left feeling pretty happy about that. Now, I should mention this other thief, Igon. I talked about him just a minute ago. He is Bergen's apprentice, basically. And when they meet up with Jenna after this whole business with the bull god, Igon and Jenna just kind of, their eyes just kind of lock. And suddenly it's like love at first sight. And from that moment on, it seems like whenever you see either Igon or Jenna in this comic, they're side by side. They're right next to each other. They are practically pressed up against each other. And Conan just doesn't seem to notice or he just doesn't care. But then we get the bit where Conan and Bergen decide to team up and they go out and they be, you know, they're they're thieving and robbing and making a lot of money. And eventually. Bergen decides that they're going to rob the red priest, Nabonidus, who is, in essence, the, the true ruler of the city. And so they break into the red priest's house or temple or, or whatever it is, and they manage to get away with a few things. Conan only takes a dagger belt, and that's it, because he, do, he doesn't trust anything else. He says the whole place stinks of sorcery. Bergen takes a few things and then they leave. The red priest shows up and he realizes immediately that he has been robbed and he summons the city guard, one of which is Captain Aaron, and he sends them off to find the thieves. Aaron visits the, re- the, the priest of Anu, the, the fat bald guy from previously, you know, pr- we, we talked about previously earlier in the issue. That's what I meant to say. And that doesn't make sense. He tells the priest basically that he knows that the thieves have been there and that he knows that the priest is a fence for their goods. And he wants the priest to help him set up a trap for Conan and Bergen. And the priest doesn't want to. Not at first. He doesn't want to be known as as an informer. But then. Captain Aaron gives him a bag of gold and the priest gives him a big thumbs up in return. And so Conan and Bergen arrive with their ill-gotten goods to, to give to the priest defense. And they are attacked by the city guard. A net is thrown over them. Conan manages to escape and he's about to come back to, to free Bergen, who is caught up in the net. But Bergen tells him to go. Leave him there. There's nothing that Conan can do for him, and he tells him to flee. And so Conan runs off, telling him that he will be back to free him. Conan then runs into Igon and Jenna, who are again are together, and he tells them about Bergen. And Igon just dismisses it and kind of laughs about it, and that pisses Conan off, who slaps Igon across the face, knocking Igon back into the onto the floor. And that's when Conan leaves. He says, I'm going to I'm going to go get Bergen free. They always wait three days before executing thieves. And that gives me time to plan. 
But as soon as he steps out onto the street where it's raining, a boy comes running up to him, a little boy named Gorda. This gives us the assumption, you know, of course, that Conan has now been here in the maze in this city state of Corinthia for a while now. He's gotten to know the people. The people know him. Um, You know, this is not all happening over the span of a day. This is weeks, possibly even months. I I don't know. But he's been there long enough that he's recognized that people know him by name and he's made friends and associates and, and whatnot. But this boy comes to tell him, that they're not waiting three days to execute Bergen. They're doing it right now. And so Conan, grabbing a cape and throwing it on, he runs to the site of the execution where Bergen is is up on a, a hangman's scaffold. They announce his sentence. They put the noose around his neck and they hang him. And Conan, he can't do anything. He All he can do is stand there and watch, which I don't know. I mean... They have to do that because this is setting up what's going to happen to Conan in the next issue. But I feel like the Conan that we've gotten to know at this point wouldn't have cared that there were a bunch of guards around and that people were watching. He would have stormed that scaffolding. He would have cut Bergen loose and he would have chopped down anybody who got in his way to free who is at this point his his only real friend. Because he can't trust Jenna anymore, he 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 kind of I think he kind of realizes that Jenna and Igon have become a thing, especially since when he last saw them, they were walking arm in arm. But I feel like the Conan that we've gotten to know at this point would have either freed Bergen at this point or died trying to free him. But instead, he stands and watches it happen, very frustrated and angry, and he punches a wall as soon as it's done. And as he's standing there in the rain, he happens to look up and see this priest of Anu standing in a window, looking out at the at the execution site. And then the captain of the guard, Captain Aaron, approaches him and they talk. And that's when Conan realizes that it was the priest that betrayed them. So he breaks into the well, he, he goes into the temple of Anu and he is about to kill the priest. They wrestle for a little bit, but the priest is able to wiggle his way free. He hits Conan across the head with a little statue, and then he runs off into the room where there's this, I can't remember what they called it now, earlier in the issue. It is called the Silver Spiral, which leads upwards to the very stars themselves. It's a a sculpture made up of just gold and jewels and people and, well, not gold, silver. And uh, one of the carvings of people is this bull god, Anu, and that's what he used to summon the avatar of Anu. And so that's what he does here. He summons the god, the bull god. And we learn here that he doesn't need the amulet to summon Anu, but he does need the amulet to control the bull god. Because as the bull god is taking form, Conan points out, I have your amulet. You can't control the bull god and the thing just starts going crazy and wrecking everything and destroying walls and he's bringing the temple down around their ears and he they we learn that basically once the bull of anu well here here's what the priest says once the bull of anu has assumed fleshy form he cannot return to the heavens till he has tasted one human death and the priest assumes that that death is going to be conan because the 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 bull god has Conan in its hand, but 
Conan stabs the bull god in, in the palm with his sword, the causing the bull god to drop Conan onto the floor. And then Anu picks up the priest and just simply using its thumb, crushes the priest's chest and then drops the priest to the ground. Now, here's the thing that I, I find a bit confusing because despite the fact that the priest said that the bull god, this avatar, would not return until it tastes the death of at least one human. It's after it crushes the priest's chest and throws the priest to the ground that it then finally becomes discorporate and fades away into mist. But the priest isn't dead. So <laughs> I don't know if the bull god is like, all right, well, he's going to die. That's good enough for me. There's no way the priest is going to survive. So I'll go ahead and go. Or or what? Or I, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is there. I'm assuming it's just that the 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 bull god knows that the priest is going to die, and that's good enough for the bull god. Now, the issue ends with Conan killing the priest and then going out and killing the guard who's watching over the the scaffolding where Bergen still hangs, and he cuts Bergen down, burns the scaffolding to the ground, and then kills a couple more guards to get out of the city so that he can then bury his friend outside the city. But I want to talk about this ending for a moment because the killing of the priest in this issue is what is mentioned in Rogues in the House, which when we get to Rogues in the House, Conan is in a certain predicament that he's there because of what happened in this issue. And what it actually says in the story is this. There was a priest of Anu whose temple, rising at the fringe of the slum district, was the scene of more than devotions. The priest was fat and full-fed, and he was at once a fence for stolen articles and a spy for the police. He worked a thriving trade both ways because the district on which he bordered was the maze, a tangle of muddy, winding alleys and sordid dens, frequented by the bolder thieves in the kingdom. Daring above all were a Gunderman deserter from the mercenaries and a barbaric Cimmerian. Because of the priest of Anu, the Gunderman was taken and hanged in the market square. But the Cimmerian fled, and learning in devious ways of the priest's treachery, he entered the temple of Anu by night and cut off the priest's head. First of all, I find it very interesting how Roy was able to put all of the pieces together here in issue number 10 based off of that little bit there in Rogues in the House, and that that would set up what's going to happen in issue 11. And I just find it interesting how all the pieces just sort of fell into place. For example, let's talk about Bergen. This was a character that Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith introduced in issue number eight, as we've said before. And that issue was, of course, based on an outline or a synopsis written by Robert E. Howard for a story called The Hall of the Dead, which Howard never finished and thus was never published in his lifetime. But then L. Sprague de Camp came along, and he finished the story and published it in 1967. So in that Howard outline, Conan, as the story opens, is pursued by a force of Zamoran soldiers who are led by a Gunderman captain by the name of Nestor. L. Sprague de Camp used this information in his version. But... Based on where Conan was at the end of issue number seven, Thomas changes the soldiers from Zamorans to Corinthians. 
because geographically that would have made more sense. He does keep the Gunderman captain from the outline, but to distance his version from the DeCamp version, Roy changes the Gunderman captain's name from Nestor to Bergen, named after both the French province of Burgundy and a ventriloquist by the name of Edgar Bergen. Well, as he's putting the story together for issue 10 and planning the adaptation of Rogues in the House for issue 11, Thomas looks at that passage that I read just just a moment ago, and he realizes that, yeah, this unnamed Gunderman deserter was only mentioned that one time, but Thomas had himself a Gunderman from issue number eight that may or may not have died because it wasn't made clear just what happened to Captain Bergen by the end of issue number eight. And so Thomas brought him into this issue here, issue number 10, and that one move just kind of seamlessly ties together issues 8, 10, and 11 in a way that Howard really hadn't planned on when he was kind of banging out his Conan stories back in the 30s and when he wrote Rogues in the House. I mean, the whole Gunderman captain thing and Conan being upset that they hanged him, that was just a bit that Howard wrote to explain why Conan ends up where he is when the story begins. But I find that kind of stuff here with Roy and realizing, hey, there's a Gunderman that they mention in Rogues in the House, and I have a Gunderman that may be alive, and I can use him here in issue number 10 to help set up what's going to happen in issue number 11. I just find all that incredibly fascinating because based on what I can dig up, when Roy had created the character of Captain Bergen for issue number eight, he hadn't done so knowing that he would use him again just two issues later. And yet he stumbles across this idea at a later time, making the use of Captain Bergen from issue number eight, one of those fortuitous happenstances that by pure accident just happens to tie everything together. I just find that kind of stuff super interesting. Anyway, Back to that ending. Because of that passage from Rogues in the House that I I read there just a bit earlier, the priest at the end of this issue was supposed to be beheaded. But due to the Comics Code Authority and their rules on what can and cannot be included in a comic book at the time, they were not allowed to depict the decapitation in the art. They were also not allowed to say in either the dialogue or the captions that the decapitation had been done. So Barry Windsor Smith comes up with this idea that we see there on page 22. We have the first five panels that show Conan approaching the priest who's laying on the ground. The camera pans up so that the priest is no longer in the frame. And then Conan delivers a blow with his sword. But while we see Conan swing the sword, whatever he's swinging at is off panel. So we don't see a sword connect or in this case, chop through anything. It's that sixth panel there on page 22. That's the brilliant one. The priest's head is in profile. His eyes are closed. His mouth is open. And as Conan walks away, he's wiping something from his blade. Conan's back is to us, so we can't see what it is that he's cleaning from off his sword. But there's really no doubt that it is blood and that it is the priest's blood. And there's really no doubt that the priest is now dead. However, it's not immediately clear here that what we're seeing of the priest is, again, just his head in profile, is a head that has been severed from his body. I certainly didn't pick up on that when I read it. 
Not until I read Thomas's amazing book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume number one. And now that I do know that that's what I'm actually seeing there in that panel, it makes it so creepy. And I love it so much. And I think that's that's a, a, a great piece of information to run across because I probably never would have picked up on the fact that we're looking at the priest's head that has been removed from his body. I, I never would have picked up on that. And again, super creepy. Now, speaking of the Comics Code Authority and Roy Thomas's amazing book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Volume 1, it seems that the authority was also not pleased with the fact that Conan kills this priest and then walks away from it unpunished. Now, he will see some form of punishment for this crime in the next issue. That's a little tease. Yeah, such a tease. But that wasn't good enough for the Comics Code Authority. They wanted it made clear to the readers within issue number 10 that Conan would be punished for this crime. And that's why there on the final panel of this issue, we get these captions that tell us, Yet no river of blood can wash away the ache, the emptiness which hovers at Conan's shoulder, and no dungeon which looms in Conan's unglimpsed future can ever reeve his barbarian's heart like the death of a friend betrayed. <laughs> so yeah, a dungeon that looms in Conan's unglimpsed future. That by itself appeased the Comics Code Authority. I, that's, that's so funny because it's not 100% clear. They wanted everybody to know that Conan was going to be punished and so they put in these captions here at the end. And to me, it's not 100% clear that Conan is going to be punished. It just means that at some point in the future, he is going to be in a dungeon. I don't know. Those Comics Code Authority people are very, very silly. Anyway, that was issue number 10. I really quite enjoyed it. Again, Roy says in his book that it wasn't one of his favorites and the fans didn't like it all that much. And he felt that the reason was because the next issue, issue number 11, because it's based on Rogues in the House, which was, a, from what I understand, a popular Robert E. Howard Conan story. It's certainly one of my favorites that that issue kind of overshadows issue number 10. But I really rather enjoyed this issue. Again, we're seeing Barry Windsor Smith becoming more and more Barry Windsor Smith. I don't know if I talked about this in the episode in which we talked about issue number nine. But I, I think I'm fairly certain that when we see Barry Windsor Smith art in the mid 80s, when he's on, for example, X-Men number 205, the, my single favorite comic book issue of all time, I'm fairly certain that Barry Windsor Smith is not just penciling, he's also inking and he's also coloring. And so I feel like if Barry was inking himself here on these issues, that's what we would see. We would see something way closer to his 80s art style than what we're seeing now. I think the reason why it's close that we can see glimpses of it, it's just that it's peeking through whoever may be inking at the time. But there are certain panels in this issue that I just really enjoy. And the one that stands out to me most, it's really kind of dumb, but it's on page 16. It's after Conan has come to the temple to kill the priest and the priest smacks him in the head with the statue and runs off the fourth panel on page 16 with the caption, prayers have ever been a stranger to this full fed priest, but he mouths them now, but he mouths them now, but he mouths them now as he stumbles clumsily 
through labyrinthine corridors. That panel, the look on that freaking priest's face with his mouth agape and spit coming out of his mouth as he is obviously calling out these freaking prayers. And then the very next panel where he's reaching his hand out to the freaking sculpture thing. And then the last panel on the page, this evil look on his face. Those are just great looking panels. In fact, that final panel on page 16 doesn't even look like it would be Barry Windsor Smith art. I don't, I don't know who that makes me think of. Art Adams, maybe? But that one panel, fourth panel on that page, that I just, that's my favorite panel of this whole issue. There's just something about the, the look on that priest's face that I, I really rather enjoy. But yeah, that was issue number 10. I really enjoyed it. I don't know if I would say it's my favorite so far, but it's up there. I haven't really gone through and ranked everything yet. I know that I believe issue number eight, I think I said was my favorite so far. And I don't think that this one is better than issue number eight, but it's, it's pretty close. What'd y'all think? Steven or else at gmail.com. Speaking of which, how about we do some listeners feedback? I talked about this email in the previous episode. I said that I wanted to save this email for this episode when we were back to talking about the Marvel books, because this email specifically addresses the episode in which I talked about issue number nine and me discovering really exactly how racist Robert E. Howard was and how I am coming to grips over that fact. and. I'm still able to enjoy Conan and Conan comics, despite the fact that it's, you know, his original creator was a big racist. So this email comes from Greg and he says, Hey, sword brother. So caught your last episode and almost reflexively, I wanted to defend Howard, but I can't. Racism really has no defense, but I also wonder if I'd have been racist if I'd have lived in his time too. I mean, there was still a lot of the racist propaganda being practiced by the government and scientific community to justify colonization and even worse, slavery. I hope I wouldn't have been, but I do have a tendency to accept when something tags science as evidence, and I did have to overcome the homophobia that was instilled in my youth just from lack of understanding. Also, from what I understand, Howard's prejudice wasn't near as extreme as a lot of people in his time. His contemporary H.P. Lovecraft, from what I've read, was practically a Nazi, and that's even with marrying a Jew. Also, Howard did seem to have a twisted sense of respect for some races as he saw them as closer to their savage, which would have equated to his barbarianism over civilization. But that doesn't make it any better. It just hits me really hard because I always seem to have a personal connection to Howard and a lot of his opinions I totally get, like way more than any other writer. Still, on the other hand, I despise racism. It goes back to my hate of bullies, and racism is an ultimate form of that. Kudos to you for speaking up about it. However, I am surprised you didn't find much about it. I thought there was a lot out there about it, but I also have a tendency to avoid it. Fortune and glory, Greg. All right. So first, thanks, Greg, for the email. I really appreciate it. And I appreciated reading your thoughts on this. Um, 
I feel like we're both kind of in the same camp here. I, you know, like I said, I kind of caught on to his racism early on as I was reading certain stories, but I just kind of ignored it because I didn't want to believe it. I mean, the, the logical part of my brain was saying, well, come on, this was the 30s. I'm sure he was a big racist piece of shit, but I just, I don't know. There, there was that part of my brain, the, the, the non-illogical part, you know, the, the, the part that doesn't deal with logic, that doesn't process logic, the part that tends to over-encompass everything else that my brain does, that, that, that part that was just like, nah, this is the guy that created Conan. And Conan is such a huge character. And there are so many creators in both comics and in prose form that have written Conan stories and that love Conan. Heck, even freaking Barack Obama loved the Marvel Conan books. There's no way that Howard is a, is a freaking racist because he wouldn't be, Conan wouldn't be as popular. But I know that to be wrong. But I also know, like I said in episode number nine, that the character of Conan has grown beyond his creator. And because of that, I feel like I can be a fan of Conan the character without being a fan of Robert E. Howard himself. Now, it has had me struggling on whether or not I'm going to finish reading, or in my case, listening to all of the Robert E. Howard Conan stories. There's a big part of me that, that, that feels like I need to. I just, I, I need to finish those stories. You know, if I'm going to talk about Conan in any way, I need to have that foundation of where Conan came from. But I'm, I'm really struggling with that because when I think about those Robert E. Howard stories, whether they're stories that have racism in them or not, because some do, some don't. I'm just immediately kind of disgusted about the idea of reading something that he wrote. And so I haven't gone back to it yet at this point, but I'm sure I will, but I'm struggling with it myself. Anyway, again, Greg, thank you so much for that email. Uh, I, you know, I saw a lot of myself in it. Um, I don't, I don't know. I I haven't, I don't know about HP Lovecraft. I don't know what his inclinations were. I know that again, like you said, he was a contemporary of Robert E. Howard. They shared letters. Um, and there's in fact, in one of those articles that I quoted, uh, or linked in episode number nine, it does mention a letter that Robert E. Howard wrote to, I think it was to HP Lovecraft, but it was, he, he talks about, I, I don't, I don't even remember. I didn't want to think about what he said, but it was so hugely racist. That's, that's when I kind of went, oh, okay. He is a piece of shit, but I think I can still like Conan despite that because Conan's come a long way, and I'd like to think that the Conan that is being written about today is a bit more tolerant than the Conan that Robert E. Howard wrote. Y'all got any feedback? You got some opinions? You got something to say? Send it to Stephen or else at gmail.com, or you can find me out there on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, Spoutable, TikTok, Blue Sky, at Stephen or else. But that's it. That's all I got for you today, folks. I hope you had fun because I sure did. Join me back here next time for Conan the Barbarian issue number 11, Rogues in the House, which was published in August of 1971. Until then, keep your swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones. Bye. 
overcame Conan is a Stephen or else production. Find more podcasts at Stephen or Questions and comments can be directed to Stephen or else at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or else and join my newsletter. Stephen says stuff at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free Substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. I don't know if the mic picked up on any of that, but that's my cat rubbing its head on the microphone because I'm trying to record and she typically, she typically ignores me all day long. But as soon as I try to record an episode, she's all over me. So I'm just going to let her do her thing for a little bit. Scratching your face on the microphone. She's very interested in this mic. Now she's ignoring it. Now she's being, you know, that's a cat for you. I just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Enough talk.